This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe. And today with me on the phone is Jerry Mitchell. Jerry, thanks for taking this call yeah. today. <laughs> oh, my God. Hello. How are you? How's your quarantine? You know what? It's good. I, uh, I, was, I was on tour with Waitress the Musical, and I shipped myself to Florida. And I'm not mad about it. Just being in the are ocean. You, are you with friends, with family, with love? What? Where are you in yes. Florida? Just I'm with my. I'm actually yes. funny enough. I'm with my. My parents are down here. Uh, a lot of my family has right. migrated from Long Island to Florida. It's a common thing for Long Islanders to do. And then my girlfriend's family is funny enough up the road by like 45 minutes. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's convenient. Well, and I'm on Long Island, so it's all going to be fine. It is going to be fine. How's Long Island? Tre- <laughs> how's Long Island treating you? You've been going out there for a hot minute, right? I'm. I'm at, I'm, at, I'm at my house with my partner, Ricky. We're on Fire Island in the Pines, and we've been here since we were in a workshop in New York City on um, uh, March the 13th, Friday the 13th. Well, we, we were in the workshop for like three weeks, but that week on the Wednesday, things really started to change in the city. And Thursday, we came in, and we were told to social distance during the reading. We were supposed to have a presentation on Friday the 13th, which we came in and we filmed our presentation, but we didn't invite any, the audience was canceled. And we sat six feet away from each other as we recorded it on Friday. And then everyone went off to be as safe and healthy as possible. Because Thursday night was the opening of six, the musical and, um, uh, Styles and Drew, uh, um, uh, um, uh, George was actually is a lead producer on Six, the musical, right. and that got canceled. And then that, that everything sort of changed in those uh, forty-eight hours from that Wednesday to Friday, quite drastically, in New York. And so it was sort of like, okay, now what? And uh, so we got in the car and came out here, and we have been out here for nine weeks, which you know, like like you're saying, to be somewhere where you can actually breathe air and step outside your uh, bedroom has been a luxury, but it's very, it was, it's been very isolated. There aren't very many people. And, um, and it's given us a time to, uh, recalibrate, think, meditate, uh, uh, really challenge ourselves to, um, ask what's important, right? Really? I think everyone is taking a big breath right now. Yes. Yes. A very big breath. What I and yeah. it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong. Are you uh, are you making lemonade out of lemons here with the situation? <laughs> you know, part of my job as a director and choreographer is to work with writers. So it's it's difficult when you can't be face to face. I much prefer to be in the room with people when I'm even when you're just working as writers or reading what's been written and then talking and discussing it. But it has given me time to kind of work with my collaborators on these productions productions that we're planning for the future and really focus on the writing process. It's a, we're all a little bit distant from each other and I have more than one project, but it has given us a lot of time to concentrate on that. And I think, I think ultimately that's going to be good for everyone who's working on working on projects. Yes. And you mentioned that in a, in the email to me, and I had read this about you that your, your, your process is really, it's with the collaborators in the script more so than yeah. the steps. The steps tell the story after you figure out the script. And I want to I want to talk about all of that. I do, though, before we get to that, I want to bring it back to the beginning of time for Jerry Mitchell. 
Uh, <laughs> what what were growing up growing up in I believe it was Paw Paw, Michigan? What were your theater dreams? Uh, I really didn't have theater dreams until I went to the Papa Village Players with my next door neighbor and got cast in The Music Man. And then I was 10 years old and I said, this is it. This is my life. And I was pretty, I just, you know, I had that, that moment. I guess a lot of people in the theater can think back to those moments, but it really was very young. I was 10 years old and I really, I really realized this was where I was supposed to be. It sounds strange to think of that, but I can remember very clearly having that conversation with my mom and dad, but my mom and saying that this, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And it was done. It was a done deal. What, what did your parents teach you about work ethic? Uh, well, my parents and my grandparents, um, my, my parents on my father's side owned a bar and restaurant, uh, the Friendly Tavern, Gene Mitchell's, the Friendly Place, later called Gene Mitchell's, the Friendly Place, and my grandparents on my mom's side, Italian, that was the Polish side, the Italian had also a restaurant business and a winery in Papa, Michigan, one of the firms in Papa, Michigan, which has now like seven or eight wineries in it, southwestern Michigan, uh, fruit wines, and uh, then then had a spaghetti sauce business. Uh, um, and they always um, had a job for me. So if I needed to make money, I would work for my grandfather on either side or my grandmother on either side at the bar or at the spaghetti uh, sauce plant, and I would make money. And they taught me that I could have anything I wanted. I just had to do a job to get that money. And, you know, when you're young and you're not thinking about that, um, you are learning that by putting in the work, you reap a reward. And I think it's one of the greatest things an adult can teach a child or a, a grandparent can teach it, you know, a grandkid, is that it's, you, if you work for it, you'll, if you earn it, it will be so much more sweet. Yes. Yes. And you you brought up a really great point. I didn't I didn't realize this how entrepreneurial your your background is with your your parents your grandparents. Did that have a a part in you being able to ask for opportunity and being able to ask for more? My 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 parents and my grandparents always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do and I never felt and, you know, my, no one in my family was into the theater. No one in my family was into dance. No one was a performer. My father was a musician and played in a band when he was young in Chicago in the South Side where he grew up. And he was an accordion player and a, and a phenomenal accordion player. I've watched him. I watched He would pull out his accordion at our bar and start playing polkas and turn the place on its ear. I watched him wow. turn a crowd on its ear. So he certainly had that musicianship and that show-off thing in him. But they never um, really told me to go up for an audition, never told me not to, never drove me to rehearsal. It was kind of like they allowed me to just find it on my own and, and allowed me to take it, take it on on my own. And they did support me. They came and saw all the shows, and my grandparents saw the shows. And, you know, but they never said, you can't do it. And um, mm. I remember McCarva, when I did On Your Toes on Broadway, McCarva won the Tony Award, and she thanked her husband in her Tony speech, and she said something like, I want to thank him because he never told me, uh, he never helped me, but he never got in my way. 
<laughs> and, you know, I sort of feel the same way about my family. They were always there. I had a family, right? I had a family that was always there, whether I succeeded or stumbled. And I think that was really powerful as I was growing up. Were there, were there doubts for you and in the early ages on whether or not to pursue this? Or was this kind of a no-duh? No, no, no. There were never any doubts for me. The, okay. the doubt for me or the challenge for me was being a young gay boy growing up West with no will and grace and no role models you right. know, to be seen. Right. Was, was I going to lose that love if I told them who I really was? And so, you know, I had two older brothers and I was extremely athletic because I loved, I loved sports, but also my brothers were incredible athletes. And so I had to be a good athlete in order to play with them. And I wanted to play with my brothers. So, you know, I played football, basketball, track. I was a letterman, a senior, I got my, you know, senior letter as a freshman in track and field and high jump and high hurdles and Wow. You know, I just did all of the athletic stuff. I was a super jock, and I was dancing, and I was in theater, and I was in band. I mean, when I was a freshman, I remember I was the drum major for the band, and I was on the freshman football team. So I played the first half. I went in the locker room, changed into the uniform, led the band at halftime, went back, changed into my football uniform, and then played the second oh half God. of the game. But, I mean, I was, talk about overachiever, but, you know, yeah. I, I wanted to do it all, so I did it all. And your first, correct me if I'm wrong, your first professional gig was the West Side Story Tour? Well, my first, I guess you could call it a professional gig, that sure. West Side Story Tour. I was in, I was in high school. And I was a senior and it was the second year of my second week of my senior year and the young Americans, which were a international touring group, a choral group, um, were doing touring productions and they happened to be doing West Side Story that year. And I ended up getting in the show, uh, because somebody hurt themselves very abruptly and asked my parents to let me go out on tour for, you know, uh, I don't know, we did like 42 weeks or something. From It was from September until April, and I came back, finished my senior year, took my government exam, played on the track team, and graduated with my class. But that was, a, that was like a non-equity professional tour. And, um, and then I did, um, uh, I did the Muni Opera, um, which was my first equity job while I was in college in uh, in St. Louis at Webster College. Now, this this going from the tour and to the Muni, uh, that was, I mean, that was like 230 performances. A lot of those were one-nighters. Was there a standout lessons that you learned about what you know theater would be or could be for you in terms of that job? When you're 17 years old and you're touring the United States with a busload of other 17 to 22-year-olds, <laughs> and you're doing what you love to do every night. We would we would actually put the scenery up and take the scenery down also. It was part of our job. Mm. And we get paid $10 a week, and we get our room and board, three, three dancers, three performers to a hotel room. We slept on the bus. It was, it was, you know, I mean, it was crazy non-union work, right? right. But the passion, the passion and at 17 and doing what you love to do and touring and seeing these incredible places and in the United States and performing, it was, it was incredible. And it, it made me realize 
that you know you it isn't always just about the financial reward certainly at that age and um and just allowed me to to enjoy the process and and i learned a great deal because you like i said you had to perform in the crew you had to choose a crew and you had to be part of a crew and um and i think it's always great training for young people to have to i had to work crew in college at the university i was in the um, conservatory at Webster College. And as a freshman, you have to work on three crews for three Lord productions at the Loretta Hilton. And I did. I worked on a paint crew. I worked on a costume crew. I worked on a lighting crew. And I actually learned some of the backstage craft in a very professional level. This was a professional Lord theater that I was learning from great other artists. Mm. We, this opens up so many questions. I want to, because you have such a well-rounded, obviously well-rounded understanding of everything on stage and off stage and down to storytelling. And I want to talk about this collaboration, you starting with collaborators and these writers when developing a show and deciding whether or not to, you know, put up a show. Where does that come from for you? What was the what was the realization for you that it all starts with the script and the story and that you wanted to be a part of that? Well, by the time by the time I was uh, given the opportunity to direct and choreograph my first show, which was Legally Blonde, I had already done nine or ten Broadway shows as a choreographer, working with Jack O'Brien, uh, working with Sam Mendes, working with Michael Mayer, um, uh, working with Stephen Sondheim, working with David Yazbek, working with uh, Terrence McNally, working with um, Mark and Scott, working, you know, with incredible writers and learning from them, working with Agnes DeMille. I made my Broadway debut with Agnes DeMille in Brigadoon. <laughs> and then I worked for Michael, and then I worked for Michael Bennett as his assistant. I worked with Anna White. Anna White. Yeah. I worked with, I worked with uh, uh, um, Bob Avian and Michael Bennett. I worked with Jerry Robbins for two years, sitting at his side, putting together Jerome Robbins Broadway. So I had had all of that training and experience working with those people on how to do a musical, how to create a musical, how to build a musical, how to tell the best story in a musical, as well as being in the musical and performing in musicals and watching the audience respond to whatever it was I was doing. So, you know, that rubs off on you. There's no better education than being in the production, right? Right. So, so by the time I was offered the opportunity to do Legally Blonde, by how loved did Kristen Kasky, Mike Isaacson, and Dory Berenstein, they chose me to direct this this uh, film and transfer it to the stage. I'd also, by that time, transferred with Jack O'Brien, Hairspray. I had done Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Jack. I had done The Full Monty with Jack. So I had walked the walk of taking a, a movie and turning it into a musical as a choreographer and working closely with directors and writers. So now I was going to apply all of that to Legally Blonde. Um, and I was given the opportunity when I was hired for Legally Blonde to help choose the writers who were going to write the show. So there were no writers yet. So I was also, besides being given the opportunity to direct and choreograph, I was given the opportunity to be a part of creating the show and choosing the writers and starting that work process. And that was incredibly thrilling. And even to this day now, I realize what a gift that was that the producers gave me to actually start with nothing. So that, of course, encouraged everything I've done since then. 
including on your feet, kinky boots, uh, uh, you know, every other musical I've worked on and the ones that I'm working on now and Pretty Woman and being able to, again, on kinky boots, be, be there at the very beginning before Harvey was chosen, before Cindy was chosen, to be able to create the team and then create the show. And, um, you know, what, that's why I love doing original musicals or, or, or movies that are adapted from a film or a book. Uh, this new musical that I'm doing, Becoming Nancy, I read the book, I bought the rights, I created the team, and we're working on the musical. But that's thrilling to me, to be able to do that. Do you feel like every opportunity has come in the right order for you? No, no, no question. I mean, every opportunity breeds another opportunity. The, the success or failure of whatever you've done leads to the success or failure of whatever the next project is you're going to do. The only thing that they have in common, I hope, are my passion to tell the story. I mean, that's why I do them in the first place is because there's a story that I actually am passionate enough about that I know I'm going to be spending a year to four years to seven years of my life trying to get it right to share it with other people. Mm. I know by the time Legally Blonde had come about, you had definitely, <laughs> you were well known at that moment in that point in time with Hal, Hal Luftig and the rest of the producing team. What was that conversation to direct Legally Blonde? Or, you know, they approached They you? approached me. They approached me. Hal approached me on the street in Times Square, said, can you take a meeting? Perfect. We, 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 have, a, we have a project and we want you to direct it and choreograph. I said, yeah. okay. And I went to this first meeting and they were sitting in the office and they threw the DVD of Legally Blonde on the table, and they said, we have the rights to produce this as a musical, and we want to know if you're interested in doing it. Literally, it was, that was what it was. There was no script. And I said, oh, my God. I said, I love this movie. So I said, first of all, it is a musical, this movie. Secondly, you've got a heroine who's larger than life. Uh, hello, Gypsy. Hello, uh, hello, Dolly. Right. Name it. You name it. You name it. Musicals that are driven by female characters that are larger than life. And I said, it's it's... It, I relate to this story in more ways than I could possibly tell you, mostly because I had been in a relationship that I thought was going to be the end of my life. And of course, that person broke up with me and I was devastated and chased them until I realized I don't need them. So I, I, I could tell it. I could tell it in five minutes. Right, right, right. Oh, my. And, yes. And then, you know, of course, the 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 the, the thing, the next thing they said is we want to choose the team to write this and we want you to be a part of that and we have sent out to agents that we're going to turn this into a musical and asked composing teams to write a, a song or two on spec just from any scene in the film of what they like and they sent people started sending in submissions and i asked the producers to put all of the songs on one cd and remove all the names and just give me the lyric sheets. So they had group A, group B, group C, group D. And I listened to all the songs in groups of if they sent one, two, or three songs and read the lyric sheets. And I remember I was out here on the island with the material when I got the material. And I listened to it and I called them back as soon as I heard, oh my God, you guys. And I said, it's this group. I said, who wrote these songs? Mm -hmm. And it, they had written the Legally Blonde Ballad a song, uh, Oh My God, You Guys, which was much longer and much different than, than what was in the sh ended up in the show. 
and um, a song called Stop Dicking Around, which was replaced by Sirius. And, and, you know, but I knew they had the voice. They had the idea for, for the show. So we had, now we had a team to write the music, Larry and Nell. And I thought, who's going to write the book? And the producers had seen Freaky Friday. And they set up a meeting for me in, in Los Angeles to meet Heather Hawkern. And I didn't know what she looked like. And I had read a script of hers the night before where she wrote about Sorority Sisters, another film that had not been produced. And I thought, well, she certainly has a voice for these girls. And um, this blonde girl comes walking towards the table in a skirt and high heels with a little purse and a ponytail. And I went, oh, my God, she's Elle Wood. <laughs> and she sat down and we just, we just absolutely hit it off. And we are best friends to this day. And, and she was just the perfect person for me. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 